Welcome everybody to the May episode of The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. I'm an assistant professor in psychiatry and behavioral medicine and the director of the Division of Suicide Prevention at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I'm here with my co-host, Andrew. Hi everyone, I'm Andrew Schramm. I'm a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Medical College of Wisconsin's Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Great. Thanks, Andrew. It's nice to see you. You too. We are really excited about today's episode, which is featuring Dr. Jill Harkavey Friedman from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We'll be happy to talk with Dr. Jill in just a couple of minutes. But just as a reminder, as you are listening to today's podcast episode, we will be talking about issues related to suicide take care of yourself. And if at any time during today's episode, you feel as though you need to take a break, feel free to hit pause and we will be here when you get back. In addition, as a reminder, there are resources available if you are ever concerned about yourself or a loved one. We have the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, which can be reached by either dialing or texting 988. You'll be connected with a trained crisis counselor who will be able to provide assistance free and confidential at any time to you or a loved one. We also have the crisis text line, which is available. You can reach that by texting the word TALK to the number 741-741. And again, you'll be connected via text to a trained crisis counselor any time of the day. And again, our guest for today is Dr. Jill Harkavay-Friedman. She is the Senior Vice President of Research and leads the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's research program, which funds research grants, offers workshops and training to researchers, and disseminates research findings to increase public awareness and support advocacy. During her 35 years as a clinician and researcher, Dr. Harkavay Friedman has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and has trained clinicians worldwide. Dr. Harkavay Friedman earned her bachelor's in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Florida, and she completed her internship at Yale New Haven Hospital. After she joined Montefiore Medical Center, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, establishing the Adolescent Depression and Suicide Program. In 1989, she moved to Columbia University slash New York State Psychiatric Institute, where she is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry. And Dr. Harkavay Friedman joined AFSP in 2011 and maintains a clinical practice in Manhattan. So welcome, Dr. Harkavay Friedman. We're so happy to have you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about our conversation. Wonderful. Before we get kind of into the meat of our conversation today, there are a couple of questions that we'd like to ask of all of our guests just to kind of get a little bit more information about your background and and your story. Um, And so the first question is, what really interested you in getting involved in suicide research and suicide prevention? You know, it's it's an. Int- I'd love to say that I was motivated to get into suicide prevention, and and that's why I got there. But actually, it was a serendipitous event that really um, I'm so grateful for. Which is when I started at Montefiore Medical Center in 1980, well, December of 84. The chair of the department had been trying for years to get somebody to study adolescent suicide and to open a clinic. 
And I liken it to a wedding I was at once where the bride lined up all the single women and threw the bouquet and we all stepped back and it fell on the ground. And that's what happened with adolescent suicide. People mm. wouldn't touch it. People weren't talking about suicide at all. And so, you know, as a young PhD, uh, who I had secured a day a week for research, and I said, I'll do it. And that's how I got into it. But as I got into it, I realized both the depth of the problem, the impact that it has, and the fact that nobody was really talking about it. So that helping people who were thinking about suicide became very difficult. And so that's why I named the clinic the Adolescent Depression and Suicide Program, which I caught a lot of flack for and I had to fight for mm. it. Because at the time, people thought if you use the word suicide, you're going to make people suicidal. Mm. And we know from research that that's not true. And then the other pivotal event for me was I got my first research grant from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in 1992. And they've been stuck with me ever since um, <laughs> because it's an amazing organization that uh, was first started by people who lost someone to suicide and um, researchers. And it's grown to cover research, education, advocacy, and support for survivors. And so that I think it, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention really brought the passion out in me. And then ultimately the secret was let out that my great grandfather had died by suicide after my father had died. So it turns out there was this family secret. And since mm. then, you know, 10 people from my, my high school class had died by suicide in the 10 years since our graduation. And so mm. it just really impassioned me to say, we need to do something for this. Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted to do research and clinical work. And so I've been fortunate to be able to do that. That's, That's wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A theme we've found across our guests is that a lot of times there's some serendipity, like as you said, in uh, where we uh, end up kind of starting and then our, our passions kind of guide us uh, from there. So thanks for thanks for sharing that. So another question that we always ask our guests, and this is uh, probably a hard question for somebody that has studied suicide for many years as you have, but what is one thing that you wish everybody knew about suicide? Well, I'm a Gemini, so saying one thing is really hard. <laughs> um, I'm gonna share two. Okay, one is that suicide can be prevented at least some of the time and that we can do something for it. And the other is that suicide is complex and there's never one single cause. And even though we keep wanting to say, but what's the most important contributor? Mm -hmm. We can't because it's a confluence of events in the context of stress and with access to lethal means. So mm -hmm. I gave you two, but yeah, that's okay. And I really appreciate um, and noticed how you said suicide can be prevented most of the time. I think that's a little bit of a shift from language that I've heard. And I've you know said myself is that suicide is preventable which seems like a very blanket statement. And so I wonder what your thoughts are on kind of that nuanced language shift around, you know, suicide can be prevented most of the time. Yeah, actually I said at least some of the time. At least some of the time, yes. So, <laughs> and I say that because, you know, for example, at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, we established our bold goal to reduce the rate of suicide 20% by 2025. Notice this, while we want to reduce it 100%, 
if you think about something like heart disease, you know, we um, work hard, we identify people at risk, we treat them with medication, but still over 550,000 people a year die of heart disease. So I think it's unrealistic to expect with something as complex as suicide that we can always be there in, in that moment to save someone. But we can work to increase the conversation, to educate people about what to look for and what to do so that we can, I think, prevent it sometimes, many times, not just sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's one person one day at a time. Mm -hmm. But it's also very hard to prove that you've prevented something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we look at the numbers and I have to say, even though I do a lot of statistics, I'm like, I joke that my day is not complete if I haven't drawn a normal curve. You know, I want to say we we are watching the numbers for trends, but we need to loosen our grip on the numbers a little bit and tighten our grip in understanding suicide, talking mm -hmm. about it and encouraging people to get help. Mm. Very interesting. I'm, I'm curious from your uh, vantage point, what over the last, you know, say decade or so, have been some of the most major uh, research developments in the area of suicide prevention. So let me let me start by saying, not that long ago, only thirty nine million dollars from National Institute of Mental Health went to suicide research. So the research has grown because the funding has grown, and mm. at American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, it's also true. So that we started with. Eleven thousand dollars to three grantees in 1987, mm. and this year we'll be giving over a mil nine million dollars worth of funds to new research. And wow. so I think one of the biggest changes is that people are realizing that suicide is a health problem, and prevention is a national priority. Mm -hmm. I know that's not very scientific, but it's enabled us. We, mm -hmm. We've learned through the years that if you invest in research, you can bring down death rates. So I think one of the most important things is the increase in funding for suicide. And now there are other or places and organizations that are funding research. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that also our research improves as our instruments improve. Mm -hmm. And so having things like brain scanning and genetic information and ecological momentary analysis so we can get the moment to moment thoughts of people and passive monitoring, you know, through our activity and our sleep, that we're learning about the many facets of suicide. Mm -hmm. And now with, with statistical methods like machine learning, we can put all that information together to really get an idea of what's going on when a person is at risk, as opposed to what I think of as looking at different parts of the elephant at the same time. Mm. So we know there are a lot of contributors like having a mental health condition, like having a traumatic brain injury, having chronic health or condition or pain, having a family history, you know, having early adverse events, all those things contribute, but the pattern for each person is different. And so mm. with these new techniques and uh, putting it all together, we're learning about how it comes together for a person so that we can maybe help them before things escalate to leading to a crisis and to action. And so I think the exciting thing is we've studied things from every angle and it's all starting to come together now so that we can have a more personalized approach. Mm -hmm. One other thing that I think is really exciting is that through the Garrett Lee Smith Grant Act, we've learned that 
suicide intervention and education in schools reduces the suicide rate. Yeah. So that's really powerful because it means that we can reduce suicide also by educating the public. That's great. Yeah, we are Garrett Lee Smith recipients here in Wisconsin just last year, um, and our center is working on helping evaluate the work that we're doing at the state level for that. So it's incredible, you know, to hear and to see all of the the new and emerging research in this space. Um, and it's exciting to hear about, you know, being able to pull all of these kind of disparate pieces together, like you mentioned to get that better, more personalized, more precise understanding for individuals. That's that's great. And I'm excited to read new research as it comes out for sure. Well, you can you can come to our website, you can follow <laughs> us on social media. We've done we're on TikTok. We have actually TikTok blasted out our social media post with our my colleague Chris London on processing grief. So they use that on World Mental Health Day, and we got over 6 million views. So oh, that's uh, awesome. we're trying to share that information in any way uh, so that people can really understand how it works and what we can do to prevent it. That's great. So AFSP is, um, to my understanding, the largest funder of suicide research. The largest, largest private funder. Yeah. At the level of the funder. government, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the yeah. work that you do to support, you know, um, innovative research in this space is really critically important to our understanding of suicide. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about AFSP's research priorities and kind of why why they're a priority in the context of the bold project 25, project 2025 goal that you mentioned earlier? Yes, I'd be happy to talk about our priorities. And we show our priorities in two different ways. One is by sending, setting priorities for areas that are understudied uh, because we want to encourage research in areas that nobody's studying. And so our current priorities are first on diversity, underrepresented populations, so studies about them mm. or by people from underrepresented populations. Our second is really implementation science around technology. There are thousands of mental health apps and suicide prevention apps out there, but nobody has tested any of them. So we want people to start putting applying science and research to see if these things are working or not. And then the third is survivors of suicide loss, which is an understudied area that uh, we, we think is extremely important to understand the impact of loss and how to help people who have lost someone to suicide. So one is by these priorities we set, and we're interested in all research, but if we can encourage every year a few people to go into these understudied areas, you know, it's kind of like if you build it, they will come. Um, mm -hmm. We've had in the past uh, substance use, alcohol, primary care, health conditions, and we've really generated really new researchers in these areas. The second way that we establish priorities is through our focus grants. And these are, our, for us, huge grants. Uh, they're three-year grants for up to one and a half million dollars. And we have three priorities. One is short-term risk. So, you know, we, we can tell when somebody's at risk in their lifetime, but we really need to figure out when someone's sitting in front of us, how do we assess risk and what mm -hmm. do we do about it? That's mm -hmm. what our short-term focus grant is on. Um, for example, we have one on safety planning right now. Like, does it work and who does it work for? The second priority is reaching 20% by 2025. And these are for implementing large-scale interventions that 
you can demonstrate would move the, um, the needle on suicide if they were brought to scale across the country. And the third is what we call our blue sky grants. And these are for highly innovative grants that couldn't be funded by our regular grant mechanism program, which we call our innovation grants. And we have six kinds of innovation grants as well. But those are investigator initiated. Uh, sometimes you know, researchers have big ideas that just aren't gonna fit within the financial scope of those, those grant mechanisms. Mm. And so the the last category that you mentioned, is that kind of for higher risk, like where there's like less prior re research around a, a, an idea? Yeah, so it's really for high risk, high reward, is that what you talk about? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, quite frankly, everything that we study, we require innovation and ultimately potential impact mm -hmm. and very tight me methods. We have a very extensive review process. So a lot of our studies, they need these data to get larger federal grants. Uh, that's what I did with my AFSP grant. I studied people with schizophrenia and suicidal behavior in that group. And then I was able to get an independent grant from the National Institute of Mental Health. Mm. So, you know, Josh Gordon, the head of NIMH now says, we know if AFSP funded it and they're coming to us, they're on the right track. Nice. Uh, mm -hmm. The other thing is we give every applicant feedback. So even if they don't get a grant from us, they have two more opportunities to apply and we give them extensive feedback. Mm. And so about half of the grants we fund are resubmissions. And I have to confess that some of the people take our feedback and are able to get NIMH grants. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, we are we are on a mission to build a research community. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I also am impressed by the um, training grant. Do you mind speaking a little about that? We have, the... we have two kind of training grants. So one okay. is postdoc. Uh-huh, that's right. the one I so, was thinking. Yeah, so the okay. postdoc is for people who generally are within six years of their training, uh, whether that's internship or graduate school. And we price it, or we cost it out at the same level as NIH postdocs so that we can attract people. And basically you get a full-time salary plus a little bit of money for whatever you want. And so postdocs might use that towards their research, or they might use it towards um, their health insurance or traveling mm -hmm. to a conference. It's really up to them. We also have another grant. It's not a training grant, but it's an early career research grant where the researcher gets, now here they can include salary, but the funds are for the research, which mm -hmm. often doesn't. They have to commit at least 10% of time, but they also get funds to pay a mentor so it's, it's like a gift, like you have this independent grant to learn how to do research independently. However, you have someone who's you're paying in essence to help guide you through the process every, you know, from start to finish. Mm -hmm. So it's a great opportunity for early career researchers and for mentors to, to mentor. And we try to provide as much support along the way as well. You know, first time they're budgeting a grant, it's a it may be the first time they're doing IRB and all those things. Mm -hmm. And we're here to help them and support them as we are for every grantee. That's great. So I had the pleasure of attending a research connection here in Milwaukee just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we had Dr. Mark Senor from the University of Toronto who came in and talked to us about 
his research around kind of how changing the narrative can prevent suicide. And it was incredibly interesting work that he has done that was initially funded through AFSP. And there's so much innovative and interesting work that's going on in this space. I wonder if you could highlight maybe a couple of AFSP-funded projects that you would like to maybe share with our listeners as something that is particularly innovative or new in the space of suicide and suicide prevention. Oh, gosh, you know, (laughs) that for me is every study. Yes. Um, And and that's sort of a requirement for being one of our studies. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mark Senior is terrific. He's actually had a couple of grants from us Mm -hmm. looking at the impact of media. And uh, he studies it very meticulously. And I just want to say that research connection program that you attended. Mm -hmm. So we have chapters in all 50 states. And our chapters bring researchers to their communities through that research connection program. And it's a great way to bring information out. It's the researcher comes, talks about their work, and then there's an opportunity for discussion. And often if it's live, mm-hmm. and cookies. And, yep. <laughs> um, and it's great for the researchers because they get to hear what matters to people. And yeah, I can tell you as a researcher, it's it's lovely to write an article and to talk to your peers. But if you want to feel like you're really having an impact and growing your work and doing relevant work, talk to consumers. And so it's a great opportunity. I'm stalling Mm -hmm. because it's very hard for me to pick (laughs) one study. You know, I think about the studies on genetics that are Mm -hmm. teasing apart. So we, one of our focus grants, it's across many sites and they're working at looking at genetics and what's related to specific mental health conditions and what's related specifically to suicide. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is 90% of people who die by suicide have a mental health condition that we can figure out. They may not know it. And actually less than a third of people are actually in treatment. But if you talk to the family and look at the medical records, you can see that they were suffering, but they didn't know it, which by the way is why mental health education is so important. Mm -hmm. But suicide has a unique biology. So there's an overlap with other mental health conditions and each mental health condition has a a biology, Mm -hmm. but there are unique factors. And through this genetic research, we're learning about what's unique to suicide because it does cut across all mental health conditions so that we can start to develop relevant and effective interventions. And it's so interesting because some of the genes have to do with uh, managing stress, like our cortisol levels. Some of them have to do with daily rhythms, circadian rhythm. And so this is telling us a lot. And it also is consistent with what we see in a person when they're in a higher risk place. So then we have another researcher who's involved in those research that has her own grant to look at circadian rhythms and how intervention to to regulate circadian rhythms can actually reduce suicide risk. Hmm. And then so that researcher also, we connected her with another researcher who is looking at sleep. And because it looks like what sleep does when you have lack of sleep, which is often a problem in suicide, is lack of sleep seems to increase your emotional reactivity Hmm. so that when something happens, you're more reactive to it. It feels bigger than, so it feels bigger and you have a bigger reaction and that reaction could be a suicidal crisis. So those are, those are connected. Like it's all connected right now. Like a favorite part of my job is introducing all those researchers and they're starting to look at things together. 
And then another really, I mean, we've learned a lot from both uh, neuropsych studies and brain imaging studies that have shown that when that there are certain parts of the brain that are functioning differently in people who either die by suicide or have engaged in suicidal behavior. We're learning, you know, people who think about it, people who make attempts and people who die by suicide are not all the same group. Mm. They have overlapping, right? Some of those people who think about it will make an attempt, but about less than 10%. And of the people who make attempts, less than 10% will go on to die by suicide. So they're overlapping, but it's not a continuum. For the person who's at mm. risk, they may go from ideation to a behavior, but as a population level, it's not that everybody who's thinking about it is ultimately going to die by suicide. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really an important distinction because we all get panicked when someone says that they're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, but we've learned that that's a good time to ask somebody about it. Research shows you're not going to make them kill themselves, but you could actually bring some relief and you can mm -hmm. certainly connect them with help. You don't have to suddenly become a therapist. You know, <laughs> um, <but laughs> Even a lay person can have a conversation and then steer the person towards help or rally around other people to help. You know, you don't have to go it alone. So I, everything I just said comes out of research. So that's why it's hard for me to pick one thing, you know, also yeah. what are the important components to research, to findings? Like, like if you want to do school prevention, um, there's just so much. That... Mm -hmm. It's a really exciting area of, of research and, I guess something I uh, that keeps coming up for me as as we're talking so far is just how multifaceted this is, um, and all of the different angles and methodologies that people can use to look at various parts of the puzzle. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a member of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Mm. And I was just elected to be a fellow. I don't think it's an election, whatever it is. But the thing that I'm most excited about is not for me personally, but it means that I can put together a seminar at their conference and bring mm. people from every area of science in to work on suicide prevention. Because no matter what the area of science is, there's work to be done for suicide prevention mm. and many things we can do together. So it's very exciting to have that uh, you know, platform yeah. to get everybody engaged in suicide prevention research. You can, you know, we have to stop looking at the elephant from different parts and looking at the whole elephant together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like, you know, a, a question I had for you was, you know, as you look at the future of research in this area, what you might predict as, you know, the, the next five, 10 years looking like, it sounds like part of that is this unification across people looking at different parts of the, the elephant, so to say? Yeah, I think, first of all, judging from the early career researchers that we're funding, mm -hmm. I think the future is very bright. You know, when I started in this field, it was very hard to get funds for suicide research because people thought it couldn't be prevented. And mm. now, you know, now that we've gotten past that hurdle, um, the field is growing, the funds are growing, and the early career researchers are just fantastic, enthusiastic people. And I believe that they will do work in every area to help prevent suicide. I also think that we're getting closer and closer to figuring out what treatment to provide based on who the person is who's coming to us. And that's gonna require a holistic approach. 
we funded a study that did some brain imaging before and after dialectical behavior therapy mm. and showed that for people who had deficits in, in an area the, or less activity, I don't want to call it a deficit, in their prefrontal cortex, they really benefited from DBT and their brain changed as a result of the therapy. I mean, that's so cool. You know, that's nothing amazing. is carved in stone and, and mm-hmm. you know, genetics are not destiny. Brain is not destiny. But the people who didn't have that slower functioning in that area, they didn't really improve from that that much. And maybe they would have done better with cognitive behavior therapy for suicide prevention or some medication or whatever. So mm-hmm. I, I think the future is going to be about developing different kinds of interventions and and using them individually and together mm-hmm. to really make a difference for people and the quality of their lives and to improve their lives so that mm-hmm. during those difficult times, which people have, they will be able to get through them because they'll have the tools and treatments to stay alive and engage in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to see that research <laughs> as it's coming out. That's going to be really wonderful. And instructive and, you know, us, um, you know, working closely with a trauma center, it'll be great to see, you know, some of these practices being implemented within our systems so that we're able to, you know, again, catch folks a little bit earlier, even outside of the trauma system, outside of the hospital or the clinic, you know, out in the community, you know, how are we able to identify and and navigate folks to the appropriate treatment? So it's going to be really exciting to see that research coming out. Well, you know, one of the the great things about being engaged with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention as a researcher, as a volunteer, as a clinician, is that we fund research, but then we take that research Mm -hmm. and we are training clinicians, we are educating the public, we are advocating for legislation that will improve our ability to prevent suicide, and we're supporting people as they may have lost someone or they're struggling, even though we don't provide treatment ourselves, that the research is provides a foundation for all the other activities that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm obviously very passionate about this. So (laughs) I end up doing it all. (laughs) I do walk (laughs) to prevent suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, I do our out of the darkness walks. I've done Mm -hmm. our overnight walk which is very moving. I won't be able to do it this year because I'll be doing clinician training with Psych Congress, but um, there are just so many ways in which research impacts everything that we're doing. Yeah, and that actually is a perfect segue into one of the last questions that we wanted to ask you today. You mentioned earlier that um, one of AFSP's priorities is really around diversity and living Andrew and I both live and work in Milwaukee, um, which is a diverse city, highly segregated. And over the last couple of years, we have seen an increase in the proportion of BIPOC folks, and particularly young men of color, uh, young Black men specifically, in our suicides here in Milwaukee County. And so I'm curious, you know, how do you envision kind of the research that AFSP-funded researchers have been doing in the space of diversity how do you envision that being translated into community-based suicide prevention? Oh, I'm so excited. So first, I just want to say that starting tomorrow, this uh, Suicide Research Summit, which is free, is an online summit. And I think it's on Thursday that we will be presenting a panel on including cultural diversity in suicide research. 
Um, mm. And the reason why I'm excited is the three researchers who will be speaking are Sherry Malik, who has a focus grant from us where she has developed a program for black youth in churches. So oh. that's one of the ways in which you can do that, right? And mm -hmm. then we are gonna have Yovanska Duarte Velez who is, is modifying uh, CBT for Latin, Latino and Latinx youth. Mm -hmm. And then Mary Swick, who has been working with Native American community for many years and is not Native American. So the idea is you can develop an intervention, you can modify an intervention, and you can work with people who of a group that you are not a part of and how to do that. And that's one of the ways that we're a project, but also each of those people is funded by AFSP. Mm -hmm. And so now, as best we can, we're tracking whether or not people are either working with diverse communities and or they themselves are from diverse communities. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody self-discloses and we don't want to make the assumption that somebody is a particular race or ethnicity if mm -hmm. they don't declare it themselves. So we rely on uh, the report, which we get about 50% of people telling us. We just started this, so I'm hoping we'll get to 100% one day. <laughs> But so those are some ways that we can learn and mm -hmm. we're interested in all those kinds of research. That's great. That's great. Well, we're coming to the top of the hour. And so I just want to say how much we appreciate the time that you've devoted to spending with us today to talk about your background and the work of AFSP, all of the exciting work that's happening. Is there anything that we haven't asked you today that you would like to make sure that our, our listeners here understand. I think that the, I think one of the most important things is that we all play a role in preventing suicide. If you know somebody who's, you haven't asked me like, what do you do if you have somebody mm -hmm. and they're thinking of suicide or you yourself are. And so I want to make sure we mention again, 988 mm -hmm. and the crisis text line and that you know, our volunteers, you're always welcome to volunteer in any aspect of our work with AFSP. It's an incredibly supportive community. We need to have those conversations and we have real convo guides and seize the awkward. We have a lot of programs to help people start that conversation. So, you know, come to our website, AFSP.org. Uh, what I suggest to people, because we do so many things as you get in there and it's kind of like, you meander around. So mm -hmm. I recommend to people that they come more than once and you'll end up taking different pathways every time, but you'll learn about what you can do to prevent suicide, how you can help somebody who's experienced a suicide. What are we finding from research? What are we advocating for? And become an advocate. Uh, it's very easy. We have a sign up and then we'll, we'll, We'll provide you with emails to your legislators. And that's how we got 988. So mm -hmm. I guess my one point is everybody can do something to prevent suicide. Yeah, I really appreciate that, that message. And I'm aware of what a shift that is from earlier when, as you said, people didn't think of suicide as, as preventable. So really trying to empower people and influence policy to uh, support the prevention of suicide. Well, I really thank you for having me and AFSP on because this is part of how we do it. And um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been our pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Jill. And thank you so much to our listeners. We appreciate you tuning in this month to learn a little bit more about the S word, um, suicide and suicide prevention. 
As Dr. Jill mentioned, there are resources available. The National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available by calling or texting 988. We encourage you to do that for yourself or a loved one if you are ever concerned. And again, if you are here in the state of Wisconsin, there are a number of support groups that are available. You can look at AFSP.org WI for information about loss and healing and support. You can also look at the Prevent Suicide Wisconsin website at PreventSuicideWI.org to find support groups in your area of the state. And we look forward to our June episode, which will be coming up next month, and hope that you'll tune in then. Thanks so much, everybody. And thanks, Andrew. Take care. Thanks.